Thank you for joining the Zen Care Podcast. These recorded Dharma talks are given freely to our community in the heart of New York City, which we are honored to now share with you. New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is dedicated to transforming the nature of care through contemplative practice by meeting illness, aging, and death with compassion and wisdom. Learn about us at zencare.org. The embrace. You weren't well or really ill yet either. Just a little tired. Your handsomeness tinged by grief or anticipation, which brought to your face a thoughtful, deepening grace. I didn't for a moment doubt you were dead. I knew that still to be true, even in the dream. You've been out at work, maybe, having a good day, almost energetic. We seem to be moving from some old house where we'd lived boxes everywhere, things in disarray. That was the story of my dream. But even asleep, I was shocked out of the narrative by your face, the physical fact of your face, inches from mine, smooth-shaven, loving, alert. Why so difficult remembering the actual look of you? without a photograph, without strain. So when I saw your unguarded, reliable face, your unmistakable gaze, opening all the warmth and clarity of you, warm brown tea, we held each other for the time the dream allowed. Bless you. You came back. So that I could see you just once more. So that I could rest against you without thinking this happiness lessened anything. Without thinking you were alive again. This was written a few years after Mark Doty's partner, Wally, died. <coughs> if you haven't read Heaven's Coast, it's probably one of the best books I've ever read about grief. And what's so beautiful about it is the intimacy of bodies 
of two men who were dedicated to each other, loved each other, passionate together. Being with the other's body as it changed with disease. And yet able to offer that respect and dignity and love as their bodies changed. And while Wally's body was the one more actively changing, their bodies together changed. How they related to each other. How they were intimate. And the struggle with this precept of not misusing <coughs> sexuality, as it's often called, or chaste conduct, is often translated, in particular by Dogen, about not being greedy. But really allowing your heart to open to what is really true between you and others between you and your own body. The Zen peacemakers that we're a part of says, they talk about it in a very relational way of encountering all creations with respect and dignity. And to me, this is the heart of things. What does it mean to treat another with respect and dignity, including the one that you see in the mirror? The ground of this precept <laughs> They love chase conduct. <laughs> A cheer for chase conduct. <laughs> it's so interesting in talking about this precept because this group beyond the wall, you know, are very interested in how their bodies move and they work with body movement as really the way of being in their bodies, but actually they don't usually use weights, but it's really all about how bodies interact together. And the ground of this precept is that there is no scarcity of love and friendship. Imagine taking that off. There is no scarcity of love and friendship. In the ground of being, everything is manifesting itself. There's no separation between self and other and things. Therefore, there is nothing to acquire, desire, or grasp. You know, that's kind of a very lovely view. And how do we work with that in terms of our power? Whether you believe you have power or you don't, 
when you go into the rooms of the living and you have a badge, you have power. It doesn't matter your feelings about it. Your class, how you perceive other people's class, tribe, like who are your people and who are not your people, and emotions and just feeling states. If you're very controlled with your emotions and you're with someone who is more unbridled, creates all kinds of dynamics. Someone is very shut down and you're very open. We judge and create differences and that's when, to me, the challenge of respect and dignity of two bodies comes into play. So on the literal level, it's always important to say, don't have sex with your patients. <laughs> I mean that. Important to say. Don't do it. So if we take this precept really literally, don't do that. And then the more relational, consider where erotic and sexual energy itself could be skillful to work with. So this is not limiting it to sexual acts. Right? But including greed in every way it manifests. On the retreat, <clears throat> um, I was talking about the succubus. And one of my mentors, Jim Hillman, used to always talk about just don't be a succubus. <laughs> don't do that. Don't be a little demon sucking the life force and libido from others. To me, this is very much about this precept. And we do it in such subtle ways and not subtle ways. Any way that you want other people to see you, your investment in your identity will cause greed. So if you want to be seen as a nice person, that's going to be greedy. And in terms of the erotic and life force energy, that is a problem. And in particular in this field, it really, like people wanting to be nice and be seen as compassionate and good, it's a problem. 
We don't tend to think of things in that way. But if you kind of demand in yourself that you really want people to see that way, that's what will unfold. You know, I've told you many times about my early time in this work about how I really wanted that. I really wanted to be seen as good and helpful and kind and compassionate and loving. And I really, really did. And I was not even aware that I really did. I was even aware of how I was responding in my own body. And that's why consistent practice is so important. And to me, why it's important to have a teacher, to have someone who checks you. I need to be checked regularly. I find that incredibly important in the way I can stay ethical. Because otherwise we get into full of ideas about how we're doing. I'm doing great. I'm now in this contemplative care course. And I'm so compassionate now and learning how to be more compassionate. So it can actually, we can use anything as poison or medicine. And so I think it's just important to always look at how are we using experience and what is it doing? There's a great story about Isan Dorsey where a young practitioner, a young gay guy, came and asked Isan, so I've been studying for six months now, sitting in meditation for six months, but I haven't really noticed any difference in my behavior or my thoughts yet. You've been doing Zazen for decades. Do you notice any difference in yourself? Isan was puzzled by the question, thought about it for a minute, and said, well, I have noticed I don't wear high heels anymore. <laughs> <laughs> But, but I think in terms of the precept, I think it's just really important how we use things. Even our meditation practice, like, oh, that'll make me, because I meditate, then that means X. And I think the story about you sounds funny, but it's also poignant. Because he's saying it's very subtle. And to me, that's why ongoing work in Sangha and with a teacher is so important. Because otherwise, we're just like, oh, yeah, now I'm, 
I'm really noticing lots of changes. I'm doing great now. But I think what, in terms of the precept, it makes us more inflated, or can. And so that when we're going into the room, then it's going to create more of a power dynamic in the room, because you think you have it, and probably they don't really. And in terms of libido and erotic energy, that creates a division and can cause more problems. And being overwhelmed, some people have talked about feeling overwhelmed. That's really important. But not to stop there. But how do you work with that? Because we're going to be walking into situations that are disorienting. We'll have no idea what's happening. Dogen says, as overwhelming is caused by you. He's not one to mince words. <laughs> there is no overwhelming that is separate from you. So the kind of fugue state or disoriented state that we can get into just normally, how do you work with that so that you can get clear to really look at how you're treating the other and yourself with the respect and dignity? So not just to stop like, well, I feel overwhelmed. But how do you realize, oh, right, I'm causing this. And what is that doing in terms of how I'm respecting you? Dogen says, thus, you go out and meet someone. So if we work with overwhelming, you just go out and meet someone. Someone meets someone. You meet yourself. Going out meets going out. So my outward motion allows me to meet yours. These can only be actualized in time. So the mistreatment of another person comes from that kind of staying in our isolated state. It's hard to do very unskillful things when we're deeply seeing who's in front of us as someone else who suffers. Or as you'll read in Shaquille's book, to realize, do they like carrots too? Do you like carrots? Mm -hmm. He says that's a question he likes to think of when he's 
feeling not connected to a person. Do you like carrots? Suddenly it makes them a person. Who may or may not like carrots. Especially those weird baby carrots. <laughs> Where are those grown? <laughs> and how is it possible that they last forever? <laughs> That's another talk. Stephen Covey, who is this motivational speaker, says, between stimulus and response is our greatest power the freedom to choose. So feeling stimulated, right, in a certain way, like feeling drawn or not drawn, that is the point of possibility, where we can pivot many ways. When we, so to me, this is why having a practice is so important. Like you start to feel a feeling and you're like, hmm, I'm feeling scared, or I'm feeling attracted, or I'm feeling repulsed, or I'm feeling whatever. Who cares, actually? But noticing it arising, and then what do you do with it? So that's what he's talking about. Critical. But often what happens is we'll have a feeling, it goes into our thought, we're like, oh, I like that, or I don't like that, or that's great or not great. When we've already gotten there, we're far away. And then our actions flow through there. So often we'll, this is where abuse of power comes from. You feel something, usually fear, and then what do you do with fear? Aggression in all its many forms. And it's not about doing it perfectly. I've yet to meet a person who does everything perfectly. It would be so strange. I don't think we would recognize them because they wouldn't be a, be a person. It doesn't mean we're not fully responsible. And I think that's the difference. Many people greatly criticized, you know, or thought Isan's behavior was terribly unskillful. People were, some people were quite harsh to him. Other people thought that that was a form of homophobia. His expression of his sexuality threatened people.
in Buddhism, there's a term called arhat, which is someone who has pretty good understanding, but doesn't really function in a liberated way all the time. So they're not a bodhisattva. They might have bodhisattva activity. And to me, Isan is a beautiful model of that, arhatship. A great understanding, great determination, great willingness, and very imperfect. Imperfect. And yet, to me, one of the things about him is that he really allows He allowed me, gave me a lot of permission to like, oh, right, you can just throw yourself into it. He was a screw up. Me too. He inspired many people to practice who would otherwise not practice thinking they had to be a certain way. In the Zen world, they call them Zen zombies. <laughs> and to me, that's also another form of misuse of sexuality, when we want other people to conform to gender norms, to sexual norms to, as opposed to getting to know who a person is and what's meaningful to them. But again, not saying giving permission to abuse, but to wonder about different expressions of how sexuality is manifested. Because the reality is, you know, there's that new ish term called gender fluid. It's like, we're all a little bit gender fluid. And I've never met a person who only acts in all the gender norms all the time. That would be strange, too. I always think those kind of absolute views of how people are supposed to be is another misuse of sexuality. So actually, to me, it's a way of that we sometimes imprison ourselves and others in not maintaining this precept well, not treating ourselves and others with respect and dignity. And this happens in the hospital, in hospice, all the time. I remember a young man on the oncology ward one doctor insisted on calling him Stacy. She's a woman, he said. <clears throat> it tore Brian apart. Already with stage four cancer, that had metastasized all over his body, 
with enormous pain in having his oncologist not willing to offer the respect and dignity to his sexuality and gender identity. So our, our unwillingness to be fluid with meeting someone where, where they are is our intolerance and our abuse of this precept as opposed to getting to know what is meaningful to another person. To me, it's all about how do we learn how to keep pivoting, you know, the sixth ancestor of Zen, Wei Ning, who was an illiterate rice pounder, said in the beginning of the Platform Sutra, you know, the whole thing is about pivoting, learning to shift and shift and shift and shift. Anytime you're getting caught, as we do, <coughs> what is that in me? What is that kind of fixed selfness that doesn't want to shift you? such an important thing to reflect on. In almost every precept book that I've ever read about this precept always tells the same story. That for me really illustrates the Zen view of this precept which is about this old woman, yet another anonymous old woman. So much work to do. It's so embarrassing, talking about this precept, like not giving people whose gender happens to be female a name. So she supported, as many people did and still do, supported this monk in her, on her property and supported him for food and money for 20 years. And one day she wanted to see how, how was he progressing. How real is his practice? So she sent a very young, sexy girl from the town to go see how he's doing. <laughs> and she told the young woman, just go and see what happens. Put your head in his lap and reach up and caress his face. 
to these affectionate gestures, the monk said, a withered tree on a cold rock, no trace of warmth for three winters. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the young woman left. <laughs> You're making your way. <laughs> so it goes. The old woman heard this, the withered tree story, immediately went and took a big stick, ran and beat the monk out of his hut, and chased him away. <laughs> and burn the hut to the ground. Many people are confused, saying like, well, aren't monks supposed to be celibate? Wasn't it even the right thing? No. There are many ways to respond. It's so interesting how we think, you know, it goes from like sexual feeling to action. Warm feeling to sex. Desire to sex. It's like, we have like one lever, right? It's like, uh. That's <laughs> <laughs> why pornography is so the most used part of the internet. <laughs> but what about warmth? What about care? Why do we have to be a withered tree? Can't we just say, thank you? Or that doesn't really feel okay for me, but I'd be happy to talk to you. Where is warmth and care in responding from this precept? Instead of no relationship, so you're like, oh, I can't go there, so crank the lever back. And it doesn't mean not to have boundaries. <clears throat> but how do we function is everything. How you function is everything. How do you make yourself vulnerable to these situations? about my first visit already. It was the greatest visit. Exactly about this precept. If I'd stayed in my rainbow unicorn state, which I still appreciate, 
I would have been like that monk. A different version, not cold, withered tree, but like <laughs> touching my heart or something. It's another version of the same thing. Being saccharine can be the same thing. So how do we get into attunement? How do we get into attunement with what is happening? How do we, in some ways, shift ourselves into getting over our ideas of what is correct and not correct? And really look at them. What's healing in this moment? I want to just begin to close by talking about this story that I like so much about Eros and Psyche. So, people familiar? So, Eros is the Greek god, god of love. In the erotic, it's where the word erotic comes from. We now think it's like that, but it's actually about love. And he married Psyche, who was a lady with a name. <laughs> and it was beautiful and mortal. And... But she married this guy, but she was not allowed to see him ever. So she never knew what her husband looked like. It was like the reverse of a burqa in a way. So, supposedly he was gorgeous, but she didn't know. And, you know, she was curious. As you can imagine, being curious about the person you're married to, what they actually look like, <laughs> one would be. And Psyche's sisters were like these very jealous. They were jealous that she married this god. But then they started, you know, as jealousy gets weirder, as you start, instead of just feeling jealous, and then it gets into the thought, and then the actions and the <coughs> words, and it's like, gets really bizarre. If we don't just feel it, like, wow, I feel jealous. But they let it overtake them, and they convince Psyche that, you know what, you're probably married to a demon. You haven't seen him because he's from hell. And that got Psyche a little more curious and concerned. Because as, you know, gossip works, right? <clears throat> little seed gets in there. Like, uh-oh. So she went into his room with an oil lamp and was like, at night, 
kind of like me in the morning, trying to find my socks, <laughs> and, uh, not to wake Toto. <laughs> and, uh, and she brought the lamb closer to him, and then she realized, like, wow, I scored. <laughs> Apparently, like you, there's so many beautiful descriptions. So just like she's just overwhelmed by his beauty. And as she's overwhelmed, as we stay in overwhelmed states, the candle dripped onto him and burned him. Which didn't go well. <laughs> it was a wound that he carried for the rest of his life. And she had to go face these trials. They're quite famous and quite wonderful to read. And I think in some ways that this is really true, emotionally true story about distrust and sexuality. Like when we don't really meet someone and respect them for where they are and what they need, we burn them, right? Like what happened with Brian. He was burned by them. So she had to really endure and actually really, you could say, take a lot of time to reflect on and really work through her deception. And I think about myself and how I kind of hid behind the kind of rainbow unicorn as a deception, even to myself, mostly to myself. And then I made everyone else deal with it and made them feed it. And I really had to do a lot of work around actually respecting, treating others with respect and dignity, maintaining this precept is difficult. And I think it requires, as Diane often says, it requires everything. The willingness not to objectify ourselves or others. To really wonder if they eat carrots. Crunch, crunch. To me, the way to maintain the precept is like the three little pigs. What kind of house and foundation are you building in this work? Everything depends on what you stand on and stand for. If we stand for how we project and want others to see us, that's going to cause problems. But if we stand on a foundation of ethics, compassion, and respect and dignity, 
to me, this is how we maintain this precept. But we have to be willing to look at our conditioning. How race, power, gender, sexual identity, gender expression, tribe, all these things are in the mix. And as Asian talked about yesterday, we, there's so much research about it. You will treat people as objects who you do not see as the same race, class, gender as yourself. No matter what race, class, gender you are, actually. People you see as different than you, automatically the brain, which is mostly like, I like, I don't like, I like, I don't like, I like, I don't like. If we, that's why we need to come from our heart. Don't believe what you think. So to reflect on how respect functions in your life and warmth. Where do they meet? Where do respect and warmth meet in your life now? 